Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support and you get a whole lot for it. World War II occupied Poland. Three partisans who survived a firefight run into a village, fleeing a Wehrmacht squad. Exhausted, they stop by a well. They've surrounded the village, one of them says. There's no way out, Sarge. Let's hide in the well, the sergeant responds. We can hold on to the bucket and brace ourselves against the top walls. Just remember, if anyone comes near, we have to act like the Echo, or they'll get suspicious and look in. They hide in the well, and soon enough, the Wehrmacht soldiers show up. Search the buildings, their captain shouts, then walks over to the well to lean against it and smoke a cigarette. Maybe they ran to the forest, he muses. Maybe they ran to the forest, 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 the well echoes. Or maybe they're still in the village, the captain ponders. Or maybe they're still in the village, village, village. Maybe they're hiding down this well, he muses. Maybe they're hiding down this well, 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 the echo repeats. Maybe I should throw a grenade down there. Maybe they ran to the forest, forest, rest, rest. Two Tales Tonight Dealing with Warfare by newcomer to Fear from the Heartland, K.P. Whitlam, and Xavier Pocaine. But none in any conventional way you have ever heard of. Let's get after it. Whether you have your act together like Wilma and Bart Cressman, or somewhat dysfunctional like Betty and Bill Hetty, war doesn't discriminate. When a meteorite hits the small community of Southdale and brings with it an alien army, who will be the hero? If any, no matter what, this army is growing. And now for your indulgence, Garden Warfare by K.P. Whitlam.
the meteorite that hit Southdale wasn't especially spectacular. In the middle of one spring evening, it lit up the sky for a brief moment. It didn't turn night into day by any means. It merely streaked across the horizon and settled with a distant popping sound far beyond the tree line of the small southern town. There was no fire and there were no trails of sparks setting fields ablaze. The meteorite mostly deteriorated upon impact, like all meteorites. Up to 500 would strike the planet Earth's surface each year. Out of these, only about 10 were ever recovered due to impact sites being either in the ocean or the as-yet remote areas of the planet. And out of those 10, only those on private property would be available for the public to view. If a meteorite falls on government property like one of the great national parks, the government has the right to it and can do whatever they wish to said fallen object. The spring meteorite that some residents of Southdale witnessed was not one of the rare iron pieces that made up about 10% of all meteorites. It was just a stone of incomprehensible make, and once it impacted the Earth's surface, it mostly vaporized. However, that vapor was made of space dust and incomprehensible matter. And that space dust did not dissipate as quickly as the more material substance of the meteorite. Within moments of impact, the solid stone material was gone, but the cloud of dust from its contact shot out from the impact site like a shockwave. It coated nearby trees and layered over one unfortunate farmer's field like a new film of fertilizer. A timely breeze came up and carried the invisible dust to the town quite quickly, though the residents wouldn't witness its effects until the following day. Wilma and Bart Cressman of Cressman Ranch saw the meteorite fall. They were mesmerized by the brilliant streak, though it was gone so quickly that neither was certain of what they had seen for a few moments after. Then Wilma's phone rang and Betty Hetty from across the road was on the other end of the cell, speaking in a flurry of rushed words about having seen the same comet-like phenomenon. Is your farm on fire? The other woman asked Wilma with frantic phrasing. I don't see a fire, but is there a fire? That was awful close to your south field, don't you think? Shouldn't you get Bart to go out and check the fields? What if there's a tsunami? Wilma rolled her eyes at that comment. Wilma knew that her neighbor was being overly dramatic, as she usually was when her husband was out in town drinking their meager funds away. Betty was either showing her ignorance because there wasn't a lake nearby for miles, and they're sure it wasn't a coastal ocean capable of throwing giant waves in their direction, not in a few miles and not for many hours drive away. Okay, Betty, you hush now. I'll get Bart to take a look and I'll call you if anything happens. But maybe you should come over here where we know it's safe. I said it's fine. Now quit your fussing and get to bed, woman. You do not want to be awake when your husband gets home here. Wilma disconnected the call and rolled her eyes again at her husband. He sat next to her and the other of their twin rattan rockers, smirking at his wife's little dilemma. Betty was a great source of humor for Bart. He never tired of her old-fashioned relationship with her husband, the way she expected Wilma to behave the same, like a good wifey, a good farmer's wife. For all her good heart and good intentions, Wilma was not that sort of wife. Bart wouldn't have it any other way. You know, I ain't going out there just because Betty's panties are in a twist, he said wryly, picking up his can of beer from the table between their chairs and tilting the last drops of its cool contents down his throat. She's just fretting because of Bill. You know how she gets. He's gone drinking again, and she's just out of sorts because of it. She probably saw the meteor and thought the world was ending. I bet his phone blew up on the bar top when it went across the sky, Bart said, then smacked his lips together relishing the last taste of his lager. Poor guy, 
Sometimes I don't blame... Don't, said Bart's wife in a dark and warning tone. She was looking at him. He could see that from the corner of his eyes and he didn't dare make eye contact back. Do not defend that bastard's motives nor his behavior, Bartholomew Cressman, or you will find yourself heading right out to that bastard right now. I don't care what time of night it is. Bart smiled. He couldn't help himself. His wife got up from her chair and stomped along the deck that surrounded their ranch house, arms folded across her ample chest and nostrils flaring as she stared in the direction of poor Betty Eddie's homestead. His wife was no Betty, and that was the truth. She was fire, and she was passion, and she was energy. There wasn't a submissive bone in Wilma's body, and Bart loved her for it. The 55-year-old farmer stood up carefully and quietly from his rocking chair and moved to stand directly behind his wife. He wrapped his large arms around her trembling form, resting his chin on one of her shoulders and smiling against her earlobe. You are one hell of a woman, my love, he whispered. Long ago, he had gotten used to her mood swings. He had learned to revel in her passions rather than resist her outrage, and from that, he had learned her secrets and weaknesses. Kissing her on the curve of her neck, he grinned as she closed her eyes. He could feel her loosening up in his embrace, holding her all the more tightly. Now, why don't we go upstairs and discuss why I shouldn't head to that field tonight? He cooed softly. In the morning, Bart Cressman got up early and went ahead to the southern field Betty had mentioned. He had left an exhausted but satisfied Wilma to get up at her leisure, knowing his breakfast would be ready when he got back to the house. As the sun began to crawl up over the trees in the distance, Bart smiled and took a moment to bask in its warmth. He loved his life, he loved his wife, and it would be a good day. Taking in a deep breath, he intended to fill his lungs with the healthy farm fresh air of his land when suddenly he began to cough. He could feel it. He couldn't catch his breath. Looking around with wide eyes, Bart couldn't see anything that would be making him struggle to breathe. No low clouds of smoke or dust, yet each inhalation was like gulping paint or gas or some other chemical that burned his alveoli and wore his throat raw. He collapsed to a knee, his fist at his lips as he continued to hack and wheeze. Pulling his hand away from his mouth, heart pounding in his chest, Bart stared at the splotches of red and green that speckled his curled fingers. That ain't right, he thought before falling to the ground unconscious. In two minutes, he was dead. His body no longer radiated the warmth he had always been known for, and his clever mind didn't give another thought to his lovely wife of 35 years, who was no doubt waiting for him with a plate of bacon and eggs and toast with farm-fresh butter. In another two minutes, Bart Cressman got up on two shaky legs and turned towards his farmhouse, towards the smell of food. He stumbled and almost fell several times as he left the field and moved like a sleepwalker through the open gate and up the steps to his house. This time, Wilma Cressman was screaming as her husband attacked her, rather than the distant neighbor across the way. But nobody knew, nobody saw, and no one would believe what was going on. Betty Hetty almost saw. She hadn't slept a wink the night before because her husband Bill hadn't ever come home. She had made him breakfast, not for the same reasons as Wilma, not because he had earned it, but because if the food wasn't on the table when he sat down, there would be hell to pay. And Betty was always the one paying. She glanced across the fields between her house and Wilma's but saw nothing amiss. Not at first. Then she squinted and looked closer, drawing her gaze from the house in the distance and looking instead to the field closest to her own home. Was that greenery? Were those sprouts? That field has been dead for five years now. 
the young woman quietly said. She was used to talking aloud just to hear another person's voice. Betty's existence was lonesome as Bill was a dedicated farmer and was always outside. The house was meant to be her domain, even though he had full say of what happened within its walls and without. I'll be a monkey's uncle, Betty quipped, dropping the thin flowery curtain from her fingertips and walking towards the front door with a click-clack of heels. Out on the porch, she took off her good housewife shoes and slipped on a pair of the muckers, or mud boots, resting along one wall of the porch. Then with a swish of her modest below-the-knee skirt, she stepped down the old wooden steps to the dusty dirt yard and peered harder at the nearest field. She had been right, though, of course, she had to be wrong. Those were sprouts in the field, bright green and reaching for the sun. They seemed to be growing right before her eyes, and as she stood there, they went from two-leafed sprouts to fledgling plants with four or five leaves to a stem. And then, after a handful of seconds, they grew taller, thicker, and began to bear huge buds atop each plant. Betty stared in disbelief, slowly walking forward towards the field until she was at its very edge and a single plant was directly in front of her. And as she let her mouth drop open, the plant itself lifted up and out of the soil. It curled its roots like it was curling the toes of a foot, stretching and coiling and then stretching again. It turned the heavy bud atop its stem towards Betty and she swore she heard the plant sniff or inhale or breathe in from her direction. Was that a smell? Or was it smelling her? Surprised but unable to move suddenly, Betty clutched the edges of her brown knit cardigan closer over her chest. Her feet were solid in the earth, but her upper body leaned away from the crazy plant. It leaned with her, its huge bulbous bud looming over her like a head or a face. And then it bloomed, the protective green sepal leaves slowly drawing back and away from the flower's receptacle to reveal brilliant purple petals that as yet lay one over another over another, protecting the flower's inner workings from sight. With a sudden and frightening burst, the plant popped its flower open and stared at Betty Hetty intently, yellow irises dotted with black slitted pupils atop the filaments within the flower's center. Betty fell back, her body unable to maintain the unnatural angle she had been leaning at. Landing on one hip in the dirt, she was still frozen to the spot. The huge alien plant leaned over her, opening up more and more petals as it came closer and closer. The pistol within its center seemed to Betty like one of the fancy terracotta bread ovens she had seen for sale at the hardware store, a tall chimney shape attached to a bell-like base. But this pistol was topped with moving parts that drew in and out, almost like the plant was breathing. Was that its mouth? She wondered, blinking as the thing came closer. Yes, she realized too late. Yes, it was a mouth, and yes, the plant was breathing, and yes, now it was going to eat her. The flower dove down at Betty's head, but she moved at the last moment, turning to scream and crawl away frantically from the abhorrent vegetation. But crawling was too slow for escape, and the flower aimed its next glancing blow at her boots. The top end of its stigma sucked at her kicking feet, the curling fronds like stumpy but incredibly flexible fingers as it pulled her boots off and spat them to the side. It wanted meat. Betty knew that now. This was no ordinary plant. It was a meat eater. This was the result of that crazy meteorite that she had seen yesterday. She had tried to warn her only friend about it, but Wilma wouldn't listen. Wilma had thought Betty was simply afraid of Bill coming home drunk again, and while that was partly true, Betty had also been terrified of the falling star itself. Now she knew that terror was for a good reason, and as she reached a hand up to the steps of her porch, she screamed Bill's name. 
Wilma's name, the several names for God that good wife Hetty had learned in church not so long ago. No one answered her cries. The plant's flower began to suck up Betty's legs, her skin burning where it disappeared between the sucking lips of the stigma. The eyeball-topped filaments were level with her shoulders as the stigma mouth moved up her legs to her waist. Betty Hetty grabbed one of her heeled house shoes with horror and dismay and struck at the flower, damaging one of its eyes. The eyeball oozed a poisonous-looking liquid that steamed in contact with the air. Betty shrieked as the other eyes beat at her relentlessly like clubs, forcing her to cower and submit. Then she felt something inside the stigma of the human-eating plant push her legs apart. What happened next? A good God-fearing Christian woman like Elizabeth Ann Hetty couldn't fathom, but it was ever so unfortunate for her that it didn't end in the death she had been fearing. It was much, much worse. A shuffling sound from nearby perked up the senses of the people-eating plant and it lifted its head along with the bloated body it had been mangling and mouthing. It dropped the female human's swollen form to the ground from a height of six feet and upon impact, most of the body broke apart. The woman's upper half was left intact, an unfortunate affair for her because death would have been preferable to the agony of being a living incubator for the plant's offspring. The lower half of the woman's body broke apart with a wet splatting sound, revealing squirming little green sprouts that struggled to get to their tiny root feet. As their human mother groaned in delirious unconsciousness, their plant mother emitted a warning wailing sound, similar to the trill of an ambulance or air raid siren, then turned its fully seven-foot height towards what was approaching. Wilma and Bart Cressman were stumbling into the heady farm. They had already made it most of the way down the long dirt drive without being noticed by the other new and much smaller alien plants growing in the once dead fields nearby. Now that the most successful breeder plant among them had warned them with its trilling blare, the rest of the greenery in the fields began to grow in earnest, thrashing around and struggling to pull up roots from the ground and move towards the newcomers. Wilma and Bart were not in a good way. They lay somewhere back in their house, littering the foyer floor where the two had first made contact. Bart's chest had burst open, the strange invisible dust that he had inhaled having weakened first the tissues of his lungs, then the very meat of his torso and the bones of his ribcage. He had lost more than a few ribs altogether during his cannibalistic struggles with his once-living and ever-passionate wife. Wilma herself was much worse off, with half of her face being completely torn by one of Bart's huge clawed hands. She thought he was coming in to kiss her, coming in for round three perhaps, or had just decided not to head to the south field. She had been wrong, dead wrong, and now she was just dead, moving like the zombie she was towards a source of noise, commotion, and food. That noise was her neighbor Betty, who considered Wilma her hero, at least in life. Betty had always respected the other woman, despite poking and prodding at Wilma's independence constantly and questioning how Bart could ever be happy with a wife such as her. In reality, Betty had wanted to be just like Wilma, but now as the zombified female moved closer and closer, there could be no two people more dissimilar than the two neighbor women. Wilma was death and decay and the finite epitome of entropy walking onwards despite dropping heavy chunks of flesh, her clothing being torn and slowly turning to ragged shreds from the poisonous and invisible organic devouring dust cloud. One of her eyes was falling slowly down her face, the optic nerve and stem of the eyeball tightly trying to hold onto the socket while the milky orb itself drooped lower and lower down Wilma's torn cheek. Several of her fingernails had been torn or had fallen off and her hands looked like those of a person decades older than she who was suffering from crippling arthritis. 
They were curled inwards towards her palms even as she lifted her arms and reached for the wriggling Mrs. Hetty. Wilma was a zombie, her sightless gaze looking towards the moving mass on the ground with benign but hungry intent. On the other hand, Betty was the epitome of life now that the plant had released her completely. It had finished its nefarious mission of impregnating her with its full pistol and ovary. The human on the ground twitched and moaned mindlessly as her lower half erupted again and again. Each wet and squishy explosion resulted in a new cascade of youngling alien plants, tiny squirming shoots that wriggled into the earth and struggled to stand upright like their parent plant. Soon there was nothing left of Betty up to her hips. Her womanly innards had become preserved in a clear jelly, even as the skin around her pelvic cage came apart and fell away like wet tissue paper. The ball-shaped mass around her womb jiggled and writhed as new life continued to take hold within her uterus's necessary nutritious lining. In real life, Betty Hetty had never successfully conceived, not once in her years as a wife. Now she was the mother to an entire family of green alien sprouts, but like many human children, her offspring neglected and ignored her existence. Their little rooting tendrils curled downwards while their trumpet-shaped purple heads lifted to their plant mother, watching its elongated trunk-like face as it growled and menaced the zombies coming into the yard. Wilma and Bart paid the plants no mind. Even as seeking tentacles of swampy green or bright emerald tried to lace and latch on around their exposed ankle bones, the two zombies continued their plodding path towards the moaning mass of meat that was Betty Hetty. Bart reached the human plant breeder first and fell to his knees next to Betty's body, in better shape than his wife. His neighbor's eyes were wide, either in fear or pain, her mouth slack and soundless despite the pink flush of life in her cheeks. She rolled her eyes from Bart to Wilma and back again, and it would have been a struggle to say she was all there. She had been turned into an unwilling hatchery. Who could tell what the slime and poison from the mother plant had done to her intelligence and mind? Betty could not make any vocalizations now, utterly incapable of warding off her would-be attackers as her limbs lay immobile at her sides. She was defenseless. When Wilma dropped next to her husband and reached for the wriggling woman's body, several little screech noises came from the ground beneath her and Bart. The two zombies had unwittingly crushed handfuls of sprouts beneath the sharp protruding bones of their knees when they made an impact with the earth. Careless of the mass infanticide they had wrought, they focused on Betty, their hungry but unseeing eyes moving up and down the woman's remaining torso and limbs. Bart reached for the closest arm and held it up to his mouth. His crooked and ragged teeth, decayed by the dust like those of a crackhead or pipe smoker, still managed to sink into the plush flesh of Betty Eddie's arm. Fresh blood squirted out at first, then began to ooze down the rotting mouth of the zombie as he bit and chewed the arm right down to the bone. Wilma lowered her head to Betty's shoulder, biting hard as she could with only half a face and little of her bottom jaw. She somehow managed to dig her jagged teeth into the woman's protective shoulder bursa, using her fingers to claw into the gaping wound and separate the rotator cuff from the scapula joint. Her digging fingers tore the tendons they found, and then, with both hands, Wilma snapped the humerus bone itself in half effortlessly. Bart fell to his bony butt with the release of pressure and sat there holding Betty's severed arm to his face, chomping away like a man who had been starved of food for weeks eating a cob of corn. Wilma was drooling over the gush of blood breaking Betty's shoulder had revealed, letting the crimson vitae spew all over her broken face. She twisted her head side to side like a rabid wolf or fox, tearing further and deeper into her neighbor's body with every twist. The plant mother was horrified at the sound of the screeching sprouts. 
It raised one leafy limb and tried to swat at first Bart, then Wilma. Neither zombie paid the plant's pointless jabs any mind, focused solely on devouring every bit of red meat and pink tissue of Betty that they could. But then a true hero appeared on the scene, a brand new protagonist who had so recently been born and only now grown enough to free itself from the nearby field and make its way over. It was much taller than the plant mother, standing at least 12 feet high. At the very top of the alien life, the form was a massive bloom that could only be compared to a sunflower, with brilliant yellow petals that ended in dangerously sharp points and a dark core of bristling spikes where earthly sunflowers would have held seeds. It rushed up to the horrific scene and pushed the first plant out of its way. Then it began to spit. The new flower, the sunflower, spat out its weaponized seeds from the middle of its enormous blossom. The brown-black projectiles landed with moist thuds against the rotting flesh of each of the zombies, penetrating only slightly into the decaying matter before beginning to sprout. But these sprouts were not individual life forms, such as those released from the lower half of Betty Hetty's body. These were time-delayed bombs of vines, and as their tendrils grew and elongated, they began to wrap around the zombies' bodies. The arm Bart had been munching on was mashed to his face as the strands enveloped him like thick, ropey vines, tying up his ability to move. He was soon incapable of moving even one inch to either side, but still, his jaws tried to work up and down on the too close arm flesh he was now forcibly holding to his face. Within a few seconds, the male zombie was so tightly wound up that he fell to his side in the dirt and couldn't regain his balance of freedom. Wilma's face was buried in the torso of Betty Hetty, something the human would probably have appreciated if she had any intelligent thoughts left in her brain. Wilma's clawing fingers had found the other human's tender organs, her heart and lungs, and had begun to decimate them slice by slice. Betty's usefulness as a host breeder for the alien's offspring passed with every inch of Wilma's gnashing teeth getting closer to her heavily beating and overtaxed heart. Soon the zombie woman's claws and mouth were upon the fist-sized organ and it happily beat its last, ending Betty's plight as a brooding vessel and releasing her into the arms of sweet and welcome death. Though Wilma only had a single good eye, it was too coated with blood and too far into the human torso she was devouring to witness what was happening to Bart or herself. As the first seeds pelted her dress and flesh, she continued to push her head into Betty's broken ribcage. When the seeds began to drape their rope prison around the zombie, they incidentally fused the two women. It was a closeness that in life Betty had always sought and that Wilma had always pointedly avoided. Now Wilma was the sister Betty had never had and always wanted, and Betty was the parasitic neighbor and codependent that Wilma had always envisioned her to be. The two were wrapped up together in dark coils that squeezed tighter and tighter, each moment forcing them to become one. What in all the hells? came a man's angry voice from around the corner of the farmhouse. It was Bill Hetty. He held his granddaddy's shotgun at his shoulder loaded and ready. With his first shot, he blew the head off the first purple mother plant, then off a few nearby aliens struggling to join their leaders in the fray. Then Bill aimed for the giant sunflower, seeing it as nothing more than a target with its yellow and black coloring. It took two shots to destroy the head of the alien, and he had to dodge to avoid the scattering of seeds that came at him like tiny missiles, promising a tendril-laced death if they could but make contact. Betty, Bill said with a gasp as he ran over to where his wife's body was. She was part of a distorted mass now, definitely dead though, he could tell. But why was Wilma's head shoved into his wife's shoulder and chest at such strange angles? And why was there an arm against Bart's face? 
Zombies? He finally realized, reloading his gun as he gaped at the writhing tentacle-covered masses of his neighbors and spouse. Y'all are zombies? What in all nine hells is going on? Bill Hetty blew a hole in the Betty Wilma shape and then embarked Cressman's head. Bits of zombie flesh flew everywhere around him. On the ground around the destroyed bodies were tiny little green sprouts, and these Bill stomped to death with his heavy farmer work boots. He looked up with a dazed gaze to the once dead fields around his driveway, mouth opening and closing like that of a fish as he surveyed the damage. How far had it all spread, part of him wondered. How far into town did this disaster go, or was it just the Cressman and Hetty homesteads affected? Bill was suddenly feeling much less guilty about having spent the night in the arms of Julie Tabers back in town. He'd been sleeping with the widowed woman for a year now, telling Betty he had always been late due to not wanting to drive drunk. He could have been home when this tragedy started if he hadn't given in yet again to the wanton woman's lustful ways, and he wouldn't be the hero he now most assuredly was. Bill Hetty tossed his shotgun onto his shoulder and shook his head. The sun was rising higher, and the morning was passing into noon lunchtime and he still hadn't been fed. Looking down at the obliterated corpse of his wife, he knew he wouldn't be eating anytime soon. He rubbed a hand across the scruff of his beard and wondered if he ought to head back into town, ought to try and see if there were more of these strange otherworldly monsters to destroy, or if he ought to just head inside and have a nap. He hadn't slept all night after all. Not really. With a sly grin and a yawn, foolish Bill Hetty turned and strode into his domicile, leaving the bodies of the zombies and the alien plant life to the bugs and flies. When he was out of sight, and safely behind his front door, the bodies he had abandoned wriggled slightly, especially the combination corpse of Betty Wilma. Despite the tendrils that held them together, somehow the corpse managed to find its feet. Of course, they were Wilma's feet, and they were still quite strong. Half of Betty's body hanging from where Wilma's head should have been, the corpse stood. Betty's only arm dangled limply like an elephant trunk at the front of the strange and twisted abomination, then swung as the corpse turned itself around. There was a commotion beyond the yard, out in the fields. There were sprouts still out there, determinedly digging into the soil simultaneously as they stretched green leaves up to the warm sun above. They thrived on photosynthesis, and they had been stalled in their growth only momentarily by the gunshots and stomping feet of Bill Hetty. They grew faster and faster, pulling their roots from the ground and ambling towards each other, communicating with shrill trilling sounds. And as the Betty Wilma corpse made its way to the road and then along its paved surface towards the nearby town, the alien plants procreated as plants do, with little care and discretion. Soon, the Hetty fields that had been dead for years were full of writhing green masses of plants, Many stayed rooted and attempted to complete full growth and reproduction cycles within a matter of minutes if they could but survive the depleting nutrients in the fields. Many journeyed to the road, scenting the smell of decaying zombie on the wind and following it. And while all of this took place, Bill Hetty threw himself down on his big empty bed and fell into a deep and dreamless slumber, unaware that life for him and all of humanity had inevitably changed for the worse.
Hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, Garden Warfare, by K.P. Whitlam. K.P. Whitlam is the pen name of a lovely Canadian lady who is a part-time massage practitioner, part-time security guard and bouncer, but a full-time lover of all things creepy and horrific. She's been writing since childhood and is a devoted fan of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and all its shadowy bits. Her online footprint may be small, but her love of horror makes up for it. If you want to learn more about this self-published author, she has a website, but you're better off looking under your bed or in the closet. Like her idol, Rod Serling once said, there is nothing in the dark that isn't there when the lights are on. So, are you gonna look or what? The website I mentioned can be found at www.kpwhitlam.com. That's K-P-W-H-I-T-L-O-M-B.com. Being in war is brutal and scary. Engaging the enemy is a mind-numbing experience. What about the enemy you don't know? You've never before experienced their form of warfare. You've never seen their kind before. And supposedly they are a myth. The experiences of such an enemy took place in World War I on the Eastern Front. Not that there are any accounts of such an enemy. Until now. For your indulgence. The Werewolf Truce by Xavier Poe Kane. American Journal of Russian History, Volume 21, Issue 3 Dead Letters Imperial Russian Army Correspondence from the Eastern Front in World War I Written and Translated by Oksana Volkov, Ph.D. As soon as Imperial Russia entered World War I, the Provisional Regulations on Military Censorship Law was imposed on soldiers deployed to the front lines. Unfortunately, many letters, some doubtless the last correspondence from a son or husband, never reached loved ones. Such was the case for Mrs. Alexandra Alexiev, the wife of Staff Captain Andrei Alexiev, whom he often addressed as Zajek, pronounced and written in translation as Zaya, meaning bunny. However, that these letters were intercepted and stored by military censors is a boon for military historians studying the Eastern Front. Overshadowed by the Western Front and the 1917 Communist Revolution, life on the Eastern Front is often overlooked. This is unfortunate given that this front was more dynamic as trench warfare never developed along the long front line. These letters provide insight into the realities of the battlefield as these soldiers experienced it. The following examples from Staff Captain Alexiev show the transformation from blind patriot to disillusioned combat veteran. They also provide evidence for a truce, similar to 1914's Christmas truce on the Western Front. The so-called Wolf Truce of 1917 was documented in American papers ranging from the Oklahoma City Times to the Old Grey Lady herself, the New York Times. It was reported from St. Petersburg that along the front, near what is today Vilnius, Lithuania, then the Kovno Wilna Minsk governorate, a pack of wolves became so emboldened that they began attacking German and Russian soldiers. Initially seeking the bodies of the dead and wounded, these predators soon began attacking isolated soldiers. Eventually, the two sides stopped fighting each other in order to combat the wolves until the threat was neutralized. 
Staff Captain Alexeyev's letters contain the only mention in the Russian State Military Historical Archives collection of letters from the front. These letters are here presented in their entirety for the first time. 29 June 1914, Prussia Zaya I wish I could tell you exactly where I am. However, the censors will not appreciate it, and this letter may never reach those delicate hands I miss so much. My heart swells to bursting that you married me before the Tsar sent us to the front. The pride of you becoming my bride is the only thing that compares to the joy I feel for the coming fight in defense of our motherland and our Tsar. These Prussians will be a worthy adversary, which will make fighting them more glorious. Despite the hardships we know we will face, the atmosphere is jubilant. Estimates of our homecoming range from Christmas to Easter. I have faith in the righteousness of our cause and the ability of the officers appointed over me. The men are conscripted peasants and are rough when it comes to military bearing and discipline. However, I, along with my peers, have faith in our non-commissioned officers to provide examples for these unruly but tough men to follow. Indeed, the sturdy nature of the Russian peasant may prove a secret weapon on the battleground. I love you. Junior Lieutenant Andrei Alexeyev 18 September 1914, Prussia Zaya I am sorry I have not written sooner. I am alive and my spirits are buoyed by the letter I received dated 25 August. That was the start of the battle at Denenberg. I cannot say much that the censors will allow other than to say that I was wounded enough to have spent the better part of three weeks in a hospital, but not so grave that I will be returned to your arms before the war is won. Indeed, I want a promotion due to valor on the battlefield. Our resolve is shaken but not broken. While I believed we would be home by Christmas after meeting the enemy, I must revise my estimate closer to Easter. I love you, Lieutenant Andrei Alexeyev. 21 December 1916, Kovno Wilna Minsk Governorate. Zaya. The war drags on with heroes and evil on both sides of this terrible conflict. Even the animals have abandoned this hellscape. I cannot remember the last time I have seen a creature that had not been conscripted by Earth's greatest monster, man, as we destroy God's creation. I am ashamed of my prior adoration for war. If you have retained the letters from that naive and foolish version of me that no longer exists, I beg of you to burn them. When I return, I do not wish to be reminded of my past zeal for the inglorious shedding of blood. If I return. My men and I have been tasked to defend a bridge. The Prussians sent their men across. Cruelly we waited until they made it halfway seeking to avenge some forgotten slight they had perpetrated on our side. Through my field glasses, I could see their countenance relax as they felt relief after having assumed their next breath would be their last. It was at that point I ordered my men to open fire. They unleashed a merciless fury upon the now unsuspecting foe. I am ashamed to admit the joy I felt at their demise. Even the next day, when they returned to claim their dead, the Tsar's artillery rained down hellfire and brimstone on them. The barrage started as a few loud explosions, but soon reached a cacophony of death that I swore the shells blotted out the sun. Smoke hugged the ground as dearly as the men our munitions fell upon. At the end of the salvo, the bridge had been destroyed. And yet, the butchers were determined to cross that damned river. 
They attempted to forge through water that came up to their necks. Once more, it was up to the marksmanship and machine guns of the men under my command to prevent the pigs from reaching our side of the riverbank. After the engagement, the river ran red with the blood of 5,000 to 6,000 Baccio bastards. I apologize if I have placed too much on your lithe shoulders. I wish I did not have to embrace this darkness. The unfortunate truth is that if myself and men like me did not, the cost of Hun barbarity would be borne by you and the rest of Russian womanhood. I love you and beg you to pray for my deliverance from this evil. Staff Captain Andrei Alexiev 30 January 1917, Kovno-Wolnominsk Government Zaya Pray for my salvation. Though I do not believe any of us who so eagerly marched into this madness will ever be saved, I have come to hope there is no God. I wish I could say that it was only because I see no evidence of Him here. That would be rational. Instead, I hope for it because I have seen a glimpse of the wrath of His judgment on me because of my sins. Nature has returned. A large pack of wolves has descended upon a village 30 kilometers from my encampment. The attacks began with livestock and then the men. It did not go unnoticed that the beasts were avoiding the women and children of the village. One of my snipers was dispatched to hunt the alpha male of the pack, which he successfully did. The senior sergeant, an ancient peasant who hunted wolves in Siberia, assured me that once the alpha was killed, the pack would retreat into the wild, seeking prey elsewhere. Some of the men began speculating that the wolves were displaying more humanity than us. Such talk has become more common across the motherland as ingrates speak against our glorious Tsar. News of trouble has reached us at the front and High Command has directed us to purge ourselves of any socialists in our midst. I watched as we put to the bullet some of our bravest men. How can we fight the enemy when we're tearing ourselves apart not only at home but on the front itself? While other officers had found the Bolshevik menace in their ranks, I am proud to say that I have not heard any such grumblings from my brave men. Not even Junior Sergeant Sazanov, who is exceptionally educated for a man of peasant stock. I have every confidence in the men under my command to fight bravely for our homeland. I love you. Staff Captain Andrei Alexiev 25 February 1917 Kovno Wolnominsk, Governant. Zaya. Despite my newfound agnosticism, I kneel in prayer every night that the revolutionary insanity has not reached you and that you are safe. If there is a God, may He protect you from the violence. The wolves. The hellhounds did not disperse as Senior Sergeant Elabakov promised. I doubt he truly killed the Alpha. The foul beasts have begun targeting soldiers. It began with our dead and wounded being dragged from where they fell. Then the creatures got bolder and snatched the dead and most of the wounded from our aid stations. At first, when our rear guard began disappearing, we thought they had deserted until we found the savaged remains of a man. His uniform in tatters. His bones, save his head, had been picked clean. It was as if his face was left for us to find, for us to stare into his unblinking, questioning eyes. At night, the howls of the pack keep us from sleep, 
invading our nightmares and robbing what little respite from our horrible reality is left to us. Two days ago, members of the pack invaded the battlefield, preying upon the dead and dying and menacing anyone seeking to give the fallen aid. A few of the more cunning and daring animals began taking advantage of soldiers distracted by combat and attacking the able-bodied. In the midst of battle, something miraculous happened. A Hun butcher and a noble Russian peasant began working together to attack a common foe. Once the pack retreated into the woods, a Prussian officer approached under a flag of truce while the men began helping clear the battlefield of the dead and tending to the wounded, the uniform momentarily notwithstanding. The officer, a man of my rank and age, appraised me. I wondered if I looked as simultaneously young and old to him as he did to me. They had been suffering through the same incredible torment as we, and they offered a temporary truce. My superiors wisely agreed, and I assigned Senior Sergeant Libakov and Junior Sergeant Sazanov to select a few men to go with the Prussians and hunt the wolves down. When they returned, they reported the end of many of our lupine tormentors. My colonel, an inadequate man named Markusha Milovich, wanted pelts, but they had none. The two non-commissioned officers were shaken by my questioning. You won't believe us, sir, the senior sergeant explained. The pack dragged the carcasses into the woods. I've never seen wolves do this with their dead. My little Zaya, I have fought with these men, and I trust them with my life. Looking into their eyes, I knew they were not lying to me. Colonel Milovich did not share my faith in my men. He ordered me to personally attend tomorrow's hunt. I must rest now. I love you. Staff Captain Andrei Alexeyev This was the last recorded letter from Staff Captain Andrei Alexeyev. From here, the historical record goes cold. Lost in the fog of the Bolshevik Revolution are any other letters home from the Eastern Front or even death certificates for either Andrei or Alexandra Alexeyev. In the search for the staff captain's fate, a letter was found from the aforementioned Sergeant Sazanov, full name Pyotr Ivanich Sazanov, to a member of the Petrograd Cheka, pleading for mercy on behalf of Mrs. Alexiev. This letter serves as the only indication of her husband's death. The infamous Cheka was the Soviet Union's first secret police force, and Sergeant Sazanov became a member serving in the branch responsible for his home city of Moscow. The events the then comrade Sazanov described are incredible and defy belief. Unable to find other documentation about Andrei Alexeyev, this letter was included as a historical oddity in the interest of maintaining the integrity of the historical record. What follows are the ramblings of a man deeply broken by what he witnessed in the War to End All Wars. After all, serious persons do not believe in that which belongs to the realm of delusions and antiquated superstition. Werewolves 24 January 1920, Moscow. Comrade Sergei Tomovievich Nikolaev. You do not know me. I am Pyotr Ivanovich Sazanov, and I am a Czechist serving in the Cheka rooting out counter revolutionaries in Moscow. It has come to my attention that you are holding a petted bourgeoisie widow named Alexandra Alexiev. I served with her husband in the last imperialist war. He was a good man, and he protected me from being murdered for my belief in the communist revolution. He thought it was insanity that the Tsar's army would put brave men, who were fighting not for a cruel and corrupt monarch, but for the Russian people, 
to death. He told me that he made sure to speak of my bravery and patriotism often, even in letters home. I believe this is what kept myself and several other clandestine revolutionaries alive, and, given time, I would have converted this brave man into a good communist. His only concern over the revolution was that it put his beloved Zaya in danger. Is that counter-revolutionary or just a devoted husband, an example of the best of Russian manhood? His actions continuously went against his class, and if Mrs. Alexeyev is worthy of his devotion, I believe with a little re-education she can be reformed into a productive member of the proletariat. Comrade Nikolaev, let me share with you how her husband died. Once more, acting against his class interest and sacrificing himself for the proletariat, Colonel Milovich was our commanding officer and a small man full of distrust. I think he knew that I was a communist and, worse, a Jew. He didn't trust me, and it didn't help that Comrade Mikhail Alibikov was a Cossack and not a true Russian. It was the first hunt of the wolf truce, and we did not return with the pelts as Colonel Milovich directed. He ordered Comrade Alexiev to accompany us on the following day's hunt, along with three Prussians, two infantrymen, and a medic. We set out three hours before dawn. We thought we would track the pack through the woods. Comrade Alibikov suggested we carry traditional torches instead of the electric ones our momentary allies brought with them, something our czarist commanders thought a luxury wasted on common enlisted men. The Kazakh thought it would be best to save the weaker electric torches for peering into the crevices and shallow caves where wolves tended to make dens. As we entered the dark woods, we heard howls from our flanks, as if the pack leader placed scouts to warn of our approach. The Prussians shrank with fear, and even Comrade Alibikov trembled. I will admit that the sound made me shiver and gripped my rifle tighter as we marched deeper into the dark. I don't know if Comrade Alexiev was scared but he stood tall and unwavering as we moved deeper into the woods. We could hear paws crunching the snow as shadows crossed our path, taunting us with growls and sounds I've never heard from man nor beast. Even Alibikov, a renowned huntsman in his hometown, claimed the sound unnatural. It's like the wolves are laughing at us, he observed. Have you ever heard a wolf laugh? I asked. Wolves cannot laugh. I do not know what these demons are, he said. I'll never forget the alert fear in that large man's eyes. Enough, the staff captain ordered. You're frightening yourselves. His voice was iron and helped me find my spine. We charged another fifty yards before the first attack. It came suddenly when two wolves took out the rear guard. They went straight for the men's throats, intending to silence them so they wouldn't alert us. Fortunately, one wolf missed his mark, and the victim was able to cry out. We spun as a group. Comrade Alibikov's rifle immediately shouldered, he took aim. The rifle cracked, echoing in the dense forest, and was followed by a canine squeal of pain. The animals took off into the dark, leaving behind the cooling corpse of the only Prussian who spoke Russian and a mangled soldier. The medic began bandaging his wounded comrade. The staff captain took in the situation. Circle around the wounded man. He stepped over to the corpse and took the dead man's rifle as Alibikov and I took up a defensive posture. The captain handed the wounded soldier, who could no longer shoulder a rifle, his pistol. When the medic was done with his work, Alexiev pointed to the wounded man's rifle. The medic didn't understand Russian, but understood the intent. 
Shooting an animal not being a violation of his oath to heal, he armed himself and took a defensive position. We'll hold until light, then we'll follow the blood trail, our staff captain said. We waited, the cold seeping into our bones as we stopped moving. We could hear the beasts moving through the brush. Our faint lights kept the corpse in shadow, allowing the wolves to nab the carcass and drag it into the night. A few of us reflexively fired at targets we couldn't see. Cease fire, Staff Captain Alexiev shouted. You're wasting ammo. As night surrendered today, the sound of stalking wolves faded. We could now follow the trail left behind by the monsters as they dragged the bleeding body on the way back to their den. After a few kilometers, we stumbled upon a cave. Outside the remains of the man laid, now little more than bloody bones with chunks of meat clinging to the skeleton. His uniform was strewn about the small clearing in tatters. However, the cruel beast left his head intact, the man's eyes frozen open in mocking warning. Fuck these animals, the staff captain said as the medic retched behind us. Let's go get some pelts. He took off toward the opening of the cave and we followed. Comrade Lebekov was deeply troubled as we moved inside. What's wrong? I asked, not really wanting to know. I've seen wolves live in caves. This seems a little big. Not impossible. Just feels off, he shrugged. Oh well, sometimes you eat the bear. Sometimes the bear eats you. It's the Russian way. We should use the Prussian torches now. The captain put the injured man in the lead and the medic in the rear, their faint electric light enough to hold the shadows at bay. Although we saw the twinkling of what the huntsman called eyeshine staring back at us from the darkness, bones crunched under our feet. Our guide quieted our fears, saying that these were animal remains, the normal prey of wolves. Light flashed and we turned and saw the medic's torch on the ground. Its small light bulb pointed toward the cave ceiling. The man's body was dragged into the shadows as a blur flashed between me and Comrade Lebekov. The way his eyes went wide and his mouth opened in a silent scream still haunts my nightmares. Blood from a gaping throat wound spurted on me. Before I knew it, this strong, proud man was gone. The other Prussian dropped his torch, breaking the delicate light bulb, and ran blindly into the darkness screaming. Alexiev composed himself and calmly retrieved our one working electric torch. We finish this, one way or another, Sergeant. Our comrades' deaths shall not be in vain. I nodded and followed him into what I realized was hell. Eventually, our light fell upon Prussian boots and a collared wolf with a brown coat who sat studying us with unusually intelligent eyes. We raised our weapons. However, before we could pull the trigger, the creature began to change. Comrade Nikolaev, I understand that what follows will strike you as madness. I pledge to you that it is true. With the creaking of bone and several other disturbing unnatural sounds, the wolf turned into a naked woman. Her brown hair flowed down her back. Brown eyes studied us as we stood, mouths agape. She laughed, joined by the howls of the other wolves echoing off the walls. You boys look surprised. Have you never seen a naked woman before? She stepped over the corpse of the fallen Prussian as if he were nothing more than a felled tree. In any other situation, I would have found her irresistible. But when I noticed her lips stained with blood, I saw her as a monster. The captain was quicker to snap out of disbelief. 
You have killed brave men, innocent soldiers. He shouldered his rifle. Once more, she mocked us with her laugh. Innocent? Her head tilted back as she laughed from her belly. Put your weapons down. You are already dead. My pack will kill you before you squeeze the trigger. I could hear a growl, but I could not see the beast it belonged to. There are no innocent soldiers. You kill one another. Treat each other as if neither of you was human. All the while making civilians and nature pay the price for your glory and bits of ribbon. Who are you? My staff captain asked. I am Svetlana Volkov. She shook her head sadly. My father was like you. Marched for the Tsar in Crimea and came back a broken man. He would drink and beat us. I ran away from home, determined never to return. I was lucky when my mate found me near his den, turned me, and made me one of his pack. He was the Alpha, and soon I learned the ways of the pack, how to help lead them as their Alpha female. We knew peace until your folly came and destroyed our home, forcing us to feed upon the flesh of your dead and soon to be dead. Then your huntsman murdered my mate. All I have left of him is this, she said, gesturing to the collar around her neck. She moved her head aside to reveal the ruby pendant hanging from it. It became more than survival. It became about revenge. She turned her back on us. I grow bored. It is time for you to die. Wait, comrade Alexiev yelled. Spare my sergeant. She turned. Do not make demands of me. I beg you. She looked at me, her eyes chilling me to my core. Why does he deserve life over even yours? He fights only because he is forced by a corrupt imperialistic czar. He has educated me on the plight of the people and shown me the error of my own ways. He's also a Jew and like your own people, persecuted. He hates this war. What better way to show you are not a monster than by letting a man such as this carry your message back to our commanders? She considered this a moment. Go, before I change my mind. I looked at Staff Captain Andrei Alexiev, and he nodded as he dropped his rifle. I ran into the darkness moments before I heard him start to scream. There would be no good death for the officer. As I ran, I heard the sound of paws in pursuit, furry bodies pushing and guiding me toward the cave entrance. The sounds of my comrade dying echoed behind me. Then happily, I saw light and fresh cold air stinging my lungs. I was happy to be alive for only a moment before the guilt over surviving set in. I turned back toward the den to see the two shapeshifters who guided me out snarl before turning and bounding back into the darkness. I eventually made it back to camp, having decided not to tell my superiors what had happened. Instead, I told them that the wolves had become even more savage and murdered the squad. Colonel Milovich did not take kindly to what he deemed desertion, and I spent the remainder of my time in the Imperialist Army in confinement. When the Tsar's abdication a month later threw the army into disarray, I was able to escape to join the October Revolution. As you can see, Comrade Nikolayev, Alexander Alexeyev's husband was a hero of the people, despite coming from a landed family and being commissioned by the Tsar to fight in the imperialistic army. He was aware of the damage his class and the aristocracy were doing to the people of Russia, 
and knowing his character, I believe he would choose a wife of the same mind. I humbly request your assistance in this matter and beg you to consider releasing the wife of Comrade Alexeyev to my custody. With ardent fraternal greetings, Czechist Pyaitor Ivanovich Sazanov. Thus ends the only eyewitness account of the mythical wolf truce of 1917. Staff Captain Andrei Alexeyev's account is as sober and credible as his sergeant's tale of wolves shapeshifting into beautiful women is madly incredible. However, this letter should not be dismissed entirely. Czechist Sergei Timoviavich Nikolaev was regarded by peers as a superstitious man prone to believe in country folklore about fairies and goblins. Therefore, Sazanov may have been constructing a fiction to portray a man who saved him from execution as even more valiant than he was. Despite the fantastic nature of this final letter, this record is meant to finally put to rest doubts regarding the historical veracity of this event as reported in U.S. newspapers of the time. I hope you enjoyed tonight's story, The Werewolf Truce, by Xavier Poe Kane. Not yet a best-selling author, Xavier Poe Kane is a former door gunner on the International Space Station. When not making the galaxy safe for democracy, he writes whatever weirdness comes to mind. He currently lives in the woods with his wife Morticia in a state of mutual weirdness with their dogs Chuck Norris and the three-legged Jabba the Hutt. Thanks to the GI Bill, he has an MFA in popular fiction writing and publishing from Emerson College. He is currently working on his second publication, a collection of short stories tentatively titled Broken Hearts and Other Horrors. You can hook up with Xavier and check out what consumes him at his website, www.xaviercane.com. That's X-A-V-I-E-R K-A-N-E dot com. You can also go to Amazon.com and search for Xavier O. Kane, and that will take you to his author page. Or Twitter at Xavier Kane 9 and on Facebook Xavier Kane. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. 
So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.